Welcome to the Easel Studio Podcast. This is the audio version of an episode that was originally broadcast on easel.eu. If you wish to watch rather than listen, go to Easel Campus to see all the episodes on demand. Hello, everybody. My name is Ramon Bataler. I'm delighted to uh, coordinate this uh, ESL studio. I want to thank ESL for this opportunity. And we have a fantastic panel today to discuss how to beat alcoholic-related liver disease with a 360 approach. We have a fantastic uh, panel um, with Peter Jepsen, an expert in uh, epidemiology and the burden of alcoholic liver disease. David Swakros, a very experienced hepatology uh, that knows how to treat these patients. And then we need to treat the underlying liver disease that is caused by alcohol uh, use disorder. And we have Kristen Radich, a behavioral health therapist that will teach us a little bit and, and give us some insight how to uh, do motivational therapy to these patients. We also are uh, welcome to have Giovanna Dolorato, an expert also in pharmacotherapy to treat the alcohol use disorder. And we are thrilled to have a patient, a patient that was able to overcome these disease and is uh, extremely, um, we are really proud and inspired by him. Steve Rodriguez will also talk us about his journey and will inspire us. With, with further ado, I will give the word to Peter Jepsen that will tackle a little the burden and the current epidemiology of alcoholic-related liver disease. Peter, please. Thank you very much, Ramon. First of all, um, I, I will present some 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 important points about the burden of alcohol-related liver disease. But I mean, there's so much ground to cover. So I would just highlight a few important facts. First of all, global alcohol consumption has increased and it is highest in Europe. Fortunately, in Europe, it has gone down from 12.1 liters per capita in 2000 to now 9.8 liters per capita. But of course, also within Europe, there is huge variation, but in broad strokes, alcohol consumption has gone up in the east and down the south. And unfortunately, it's now more early, early and much heavier drinking. But again, there are some exceptions. One of them is in Denmark that I'll get back to. And now the figure that you see, it's based on data from the Global Burden of Disease 2019 study. And what it shows on the y-axis is the DALI's loss to cirrhosis and when it comes to cirrhosis, you can think of DALIs as population mortality rates. So that's really cirrhosis mortality rates in the populations. And then on the x-axis, you have each country's sociodemographic index. And what you, what you see is that in more developed countries, they have higher sociodemographic index. And all the European countries, they're really on the far right in this figure. And what it shows is that in Europe, among causes of cirrhosis, alcohol is the dominant cause. And we also know that the prevalence of alcohol consumption is higher in more developed countries. And so around 75 to 80% of people in developed countries, they declare themselves alcohol drinkers. So these figures, they are time trends of alcohol consumption in the United Kingdom, that's to the left, and in France, that's to the right. And first of all, I'd like you to notice that in 2015, the alcohol consumption is virtually the same in the two countries, but the way they got there is vastly different. In France, we have seen that they have 
essentially cut down on their wine consumption. And in response, they have seen a gradual decline in cirrhosis mortality. On the left-hand side, by contrast, you, you see that in the United Kingdom, they have essentially replaced their beer consumption with consumption of spirits and wine. And that has led to an increase in the burden of alcohol-related liver disease. And I challenge you to Google fingertips public health England, and that will bring you to public health England's fact page where you can click on liver disease, and then you can see report published every once in a while. And if you go to the one from January 2022, you will see that over the last decade, there has been a, sh a sharp straight line increase in the number of hospitalizations for alcohol-related liver disease in England, 50% increase over 10 years. So in contrast, we are seeing something else in my home country, Denmark. In Denmark, we are very much discussing the alcohol use in our teenagers because our teenagers, they have the highest alcohol consumption in Europe, but it's not as high as it used to be. So some of us think that our youth should be applauded for drinking more responsi responsibly than their parents did. Others lament the fact that we're still consuming more alcohol than other teenagers in Europe. But what we have been able to show in, in the figures below, which are still unpublished, is that the incidence of alcohol-related liver disease in Denmark has peaked in 2010 and is now coming down, and it will continue to come down. And that's because we know that the post-war, the baby boomer generation throughout their lives, they have had higher alcohol consumption than the generations that have come after. And so they've also had a higher incidence of alcohol-related liver disease. And that explains why the incidence is now coming down and will continue to come down, along with the prevalence. It also explains why we have seen a striking increase in the median age at diagnosis of alcohol-related cirrhosis. So over a 25-year period, the median age at diagnosis has gone up from 53 to 63 years. And so finally, I just want to say a few words about Easel's work here because I'm a member of ESL's policy, public health and advocacy group. And um, we're, we're doing our best to promote and advocate for policies that will help us reduce alcohol consumption in Europe. And there will be a special ESL studio episode on just that on March the 1st. Also, I should say that we at the ESL's policy and public health committee, we are working on the HEPA Health 2 study, which will simulate the effects of those policies to counteract alcohol consumption. And I'm hoping that we will very soon be able to publish some of our very interesting results. And so with that, Ramon, again, I will thank you for allowing to present these highlights of the burden of alcohol-related liver disease. Thanks. Thank you so much, Peter. It was fantastic. Because I, I remember the audience that please feel free to send any questions through the chat. So we'll be... Uh, We'll have a discussion at the end of the the uh, the presentations. Please, Debbie Suacros, uh, great hepatologist and very devoted. Please explain us a little bit of uh, your vision of alcohol-related liver disease, please. Thank you, Ramon. Uh, and um, I, I think just as uh, uh, Peter just outlined, um, we're hearing that 
that although some countries are doing better than others, we are still facing an alcohol-related liver disease crisis globally. Uh, and uh, in the UK, I think we are doing particularly badly. And so I'm going to very much give you a little bit of a UK perspective, but I hope it, it relates to, to many of you uh, and your practice. So uh, our Office for National Statistics shows that the number of people dying from alcohol-related problems actually reached a new high in 2021, up, tw up 27% from 2019 and about 7% from 2020, with about 78% of these deaths being purely related to alcohol-related cirrhosis. And the thing with alcohol-related uh, uh, liver disease is that usually it has no symptoms in the early stages, and this is, what make, this is why it makes it so difficult to treat. And if caught at an, an early age, liver damage can, of course, be reversed. However, the alarming reality is that about 75% of people diagnosed with alcohol-related cirrhosis are, are found when it's too late for effective intervention or treatment. Uh, and that can be a very, very frustrating thing. Most people associate alcohol-related liver disease with alcoholism or, or alcohol use disorder. But I think one of the things that I really want to stress today is that actually many of the patients that I manage with alcohol-related cirrhosis that I see in my clinics are actually not alcoholics at all. Many of them are actually rather sort of regular or habitual drinkers who really underestimate the amount of alcohol that they're drinking every day. And they don't see that drinking a half or a bottle of wine after work every day is harmful to their health. And that's a huge problem. Uh, and I think really, really important to address here. I think there's particularly a problem in young and middle-aged women. Um, and that's particularly where we're seeing uh, bigger rises. And of course, women uh, don't deal with the effects of alcohol uh, uh, as well as men just because they have a, a smaller body mass. I think a good example uh, um, during our first COVID lockdown in the UK was actually that we saw a 10% increase in supermarket alcohol sales and about a 31% increase in online alcohol sales. So that really contributed to people having da a daily alcohol habit. And the problem with that is in many cases, it's not really reduced post lockdown. And it certainly led to a uh, doubling in our referrals in our, our, our network. Um, of which about 24% of these patients that are coming and presenting to us are requiring high dependency or intensive uh, care uh, for organ support because they are presenting either with severe alcoholic hepatitis or alcohol-related acute on chronic liver failure. So I think raising awareness of, of excess alcohol intake and in employing early detection in the community healthcare settings using screening and, and, and non-invasive liver testing is really paramount here. Another important point that I want to raise is that alcohol may also be a cofactor in the development of cirrhosis. And I think sometimes we underestimate the synergistic effects of alcohol and obesity together. Um, and they frequently do go together. People who have steatotic livers uh, are often overweight as well as drinking too much alcohol. And actually, when even when patients stop drinking, they may then compensate for not drinking alcohol by perhaps increasing the number of sweets and other refined carbohydrates they eat. So I think we really need to, to think about alcohol intake and weight management together and to tackle them in, in, in parallel. I think there's also a sizable group of patients who may, be who may be considered to actually only drink alcohol in relatively uh, moderate amounts, but there may be other genetic cofactors which increase their risk for developing cirrhosis. And I think that's really, really important to stress that, that if they are a heterozygote for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency or hemochromatosis, uh, this may increase their risk of developing uh, cirrhosis, and we need to screen for these cofactors in the clinic. 
so if we sort of go back to the patient now and we think about some practical and sort of holistic ways of management, I think it really is important, uh, as I mentioned, to think about weight management and in people with NAFLD to make sure that actually they are not drinking too much alcohol. I mean, in any patient who's cirrhotic, they shouldn't be drinking alcohol at, at all. But, it, but certainly people with NAFLD should be having at least two or three alcohol free days a week a minimum, as a minimum. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's never too late uh, to tell people to stop drinking. Never, ever too late. Finally, I just wanted to mention a little bit about the group of patients uh, who often present with the most severe form of alcohol-related liver disease. And I'm talking here about severe alcohol-related hepatitis. They're often very young, usually between the ages of 25 and 55. And about 25% of these patients are very, very sick with MELD scores of about 20 who very, very rapidly develop multiple organ dysfunction and may require admission to intensive care. Um, and while there's still much debate about the early role of whether we should be treating these patients with steroids uh, in those presenting, perhaps without evidence of infection, uh, there are other licensed, uh, there are no other licensed or proven therapies. And our main goal really should be supportive care. So I just really want to finish by reminding people that sometimes basic things are important. We should have early preemptive use of, of broad spectrum antibiotics in these patients, particularly if they're suspected of having infection. Nutrition is so important and early nasal gastric feeding is something that we often employ and I think patients should meet a dietitian in their first 48 hours of their admission always. Um, I think that, that a young person who presents with their first admission uh, for alcoholic hepatitis should always be offered intensive care support and I think we need to have early involvement of our hospital alcohol care teams and our addiction uh, uh, colleagues uh, and I think this probably would be a, an opportune moment now really to pass over uh, to, to my next colleague to, to, to further on this discussion. Fantastic review. Thank you, Debbie. The next speaker is Kristen Dravas that I have the honor to work with. is a behavioral health therapist. I know she has made difference to many of my patients and I thank you, Kristen, to be here. Please, well, well thank welcome. Thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me. And um, I will say it was, you know, the, the thought was when I was invited, what, what do I do in my day? You know, how how am I a part of, as Debbie said, the team? And it really comes down to engagement, assessment, treatment, and having resources available for folks with, with alcohol use disorder. And the engagement piece is very important. And it doesn't have to come from the behavioral health therapist. It can come from the hepatologist. It can come from, you know, the physical therapist that they're working with. But that warm handoff of if it's okay with you, you know, understanding that that change is hard, we have someone here that that may be able to to help. And and having that approach, then if I if I'm able to sit down, if there's the face to face, not just go to counseling, go to treatment, but I am part of your treatment team. I'm here. I'm here to help treat the whole person. And you know, creating that space using a a trauma informed approach, making that place safe. We're asking that individual to to be vulnerable and and building that trust and that rapport considering their their cultural, their historical, their gender issues and everything that they're bringing to the table with them. And utilizing motivational interviewing, it, it's not a technique, it's not a trick, it's, it's not the panacea, but it is a way of sitting with someone in non-judgment, helping them get their own intrinsic um, motivation 
for their reasons to want to make the change while instilling hope and confidence in that. As Debbie said, it is never too late to stop drinking. And, you know, at that point, it becomes an assessment process. And for me, using the DSM-5, along with, you know, the American Society of Addiction Medicine to make sure we're giving a very comprehensive, individualized, you know, treatment plan for that individual, you know, are they at risk, you know, are they acutely intoxicated at the moment? Are they at risk for alcohol withdrawal? We want to make sure if that happens, that's in a safe environment. You know, are there other biomedical conditions going on? What's happening emotionally, behaviorally, cognitively, you know, conditions that that person may have? What is their readiness to change? Not what stage of change they're at, but have they been to treatment before? You know, I hear a lot. I've been to rehab three times. It doesn't work for me. So tell me what about it didn't work for you. So, you know, it's time, you know, you can try something different. What worked, what didn't work, what worked, let's build on that. And also then asking, you know, about their living environment. You know, if if they're very motivated to stop drinking and they go home and everybody there is drinking, that might be something we need to take a look at. And getting to know them, who who they are, what do you like to do? What, what are your strengths? What can you utilize internally to help you achieve your goals? When it and, and that's when the treatment, it's very individualized. Everyone has their reasons for, for drinking. And it's not always to manage anxiety or take the edge off of a long day. It could be there to celebrate too. So it's, ex it's exploring that relationship with alcohol because there's going to be a grieving and pro process involved when, when that's gone. And it may be utilizing mindfulness. It may be utilizing cognitive behavioral therapy. It may be processing grief, grief and loss. It may include a medication assisted type treatment that will, you know, help them take the edge off cravings until they're, you know, have those coping skills, feel confident in themselves. And also having resources available, you know, um, are they part of mutual support groups? Is there, you know, peer support that they can be connected to? Family resources, alcohol use disorder, substance use disorders, or family diseases. And it's very helpful to, you know, educate the family on how they can best support their their loved one on their journey to recovery and housing you know maybe the individual was incarcerated maybe the you know the individual was homeless and so you know focusing on doing a mindfulness activity where you, if you don't have a place to live or you don't know where your next meal's coming from is going to be very difficult so it's connecting, you know, those sort of social resources, looking at the whole wellness, their environmental wellness, financial, social, spiritual, where that person is at, um, employment, they may have been out of the workforce, helping them find their purpose. Um, and I would, I would say that's, that's probably it, you know, meeting it, it's, it's very therapist cliche to say meeting the person where they're at, but but it is very true and getting that person connected to what is going to best help them in terms of their needs and resources. 
Thank you so much, Kristen, for this fantastic, and you can tell the way you just talk, how <laughs> motivation you can be, and I have witnessed that. But our next person is Giovanni Dolorato. He's one of the best experts in the world of how to treat alcohol use disorder with therapy, with drugs, with medicines. He, uh, he performed the best uh, ever published trial with baclofen, and uh, we're looking forward to hear to you, uh, Giovanni, about your experience how to treat alcohol use disorder in these patients, the liver patients, with medicines. Uh, thank you, Ramon. Alcohol abstinence uh, represents the main target to achieve in alcohol use disorder patients with alcohol-associated liver disease. Also, uh, taking into account that, that medical and surgical intervention have limited success if drinking continues. Uh, in alcohol use disorder patients, the most effective management strategy is the combination between psychosocial intervention and pharmacological therapy with anti-craving medication. However, before to analyze in detail the therapeutic option, an agreement on the most effective uh, and most appropriate setting at teams for treatment of this patient is needed. In other words, who should treat uh, alcohol use disorder patients with alcohol-associated liver disease? The hepatologist, the psychiatrist, the psychologists and social workers. Uh, really, uh, uh, alcohol-associated liver disease should be considered as a dual pathology, is uh, 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 including uh, both an addiction disease and a liver disease. So these patients should be treated by an integrated model characterized by the presence of the addiction team within the liver unit which will be able to engage patients uh, who are not set to be referred for addiction treatment outside of liver unit. Uh, the efficacy uh, that useful of this model was initially proposed in a, in a study in 2013, and then these data were replicated by uh, other studies. At present, we know that integrated model is able to significantly reduce alcohol lapse and relapse to improve the identification of patients at risk for relapse after liver transplantation, improve the identification of recurrence to alcohol uh, after liver transplantation and improve survival of these patients after liver transplantation. As regards the therapy, uh, the combination between psychosocial intervention and drug therapy is the most effective management strategy. However, uh, uh, as regards psychosocial interventions, we know that in alcohol use disorder patients, as said by Kirsten, all the intervention seems to be effective, effective, brief intervention, cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational therapy. However, in alcohol use disorder patients with alcohol-associated liver disease, a recent systematic review showed that no robust evidence for any psychosocial interventions alone are available, while a significant efficacy were found when integrating cognitive behavioral uh, therapy or motivational therapy with medical care. On one end, these observations support that this is a very special population. And the other end, uh, support the observation that integration of alcohol intervention with medical care in liver units seems to be the most effective management strategy for these patients. 
As regards pharmacological therapy, in the last 20 years, uh, some medication have been approved for the treatment of alcohol use disorder. However, in this trial, alcohol-associated liver disease patients usually are excluded since the concern that this medication may worsen liver disease. Uh, and typically, these patients are excluded from treatment only for uh, hypothesized uh, side effect without any data. And at the moment, at the present, this is not acceptable from a scientific point of view. Uh, on the contrary, it is conceivable that most of this medication uh, can be used with caution in patients with early uh, alcohol-associated liver disease. In patients with advanced liver disease, it's also conceivable that some medication like acamprosate, sodium oxybate, and alfrexone could be used, but we need a uh, uh, randomized controlled trial. And randomized controlled trial with these existing medication in this typology of patients uh, are useful and, and really welcome. Uh, at the moment, the only anti-craving medication tested in a randomized controlled trial, as uh, uh, Ramon mentioned, it was a backlog. And, and the data of the first uh, randomized controlled trial uh, on 2007 were recently uh, replicated in a randomized controlled studies. Uh, anyway, since 2012, baclofen was included in the clinical practice guideline for the treatment of alcohol-associated liver disease patients, both European and US guideline, and recently also in the guideline of American College Gastroenterology. So uh, as reported by a recent position paper, Baclofen at present represented only drug with green light at the first choice treatment in this kind of patients. And thank you again, Ramon, for your kind invitation. Thank you, Giovanni, also for all your work you have done in this field that we really appreciate it. Funny, we're thrilled to have a patient. I always say that any medical meeting should have a patient to learn from him, from her, and to listen. And we have Steve Rodriguez, and we are thrilled to have him. He overcame this very severe disease. We're really proud of you. And we thank you so much, Steve, for being here we, you are the start of this meeting, as we say, we were preparing, and we are we are really looking forward to thank hearing you. your thoughts. Steve, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Roman. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me today. Um, it's a massive honour for myself and my family to be able to speak today. Um, so I'm going to start, stick with me, because my story doesn't start very well, but I promise it does get better. So first, I've always liked to drink, and that started to spiral out of control in the beginning of 2019 when the main contractor that I worked for decided that they'd dispose of my services and there wasn't really enough work for me to to carry on so I felt I was on the scrappy but my drinking started off um, with beer and then it went on to wine and then it progressed from bottles to boxes and it reached really really um difficult levels sometimes it was three sometimes it was four bottles a day sometimes in the morning I used to get up invariably and I'd probably been sick I used to look in the mirror and pray myself to stop because I knew, I knew what I was doing and nobody else did because I hid it all away it was all in my house the only person that knew was my neighbor um but I couldn't stop I couldn't stop I knew what I was doing it but I couldn't stop 
And that culminated in fast forward to January 2020, uh, when mum stayed over after Christmas. It was 7th of January. Uh, I'd gone for a shower and not come back. And mum found me and I was hallucinating. And I remember nothing then uh, until I woke up on a ward about three or four days later. Um, I had a condition called hepatic encolopathy. That's to summarise that, but it's where the toxins go to your brain. But that was caused by my liver. My liver had failed so badly. I had a cirrhosis of the liver and a decompensated liver. Now, a couple of days into my stay in hospital, that's when they told my mum they didn't think I was going to live. She was told that it was highly, highly unlikely that I would live. And that's really been one of my main drivers to when I found that out about three weeks in. That's been one of my main drivers because nobody, my children shouldn't have been told that. My mum, she doesn't talk about it much, but when she does, I can tell it's, it's really painful. So my hospital stay was, I was looked after extremely well, um, but I was driven by, back to basics. I had to wear nappies. I was cleaned where I didn't want to be cleaned. I was on a Zimmer frame. Uh, I couldn't walk. I couldn't, there's so many things I couldn't do. I was hopeless. I was, you know, a friend of mine came to see me. She just said, you were a shell. You were a shell. But on the day I left hospital, which was the 29th of January, so that's only three years ago next week, I remember saying to the doctor who was discharging me, I promise I'll get better. And she said, I always remember, she said, don't promise us. Don't promise yourself, Steve. Don't promise us. Promise yourself first. And if you promise yourself, in turn, you'll promise us. And I've stopped, I've stopped to that. Um, first year at hospital was... It was a nightmare. I couldn't walk properly uh, because of the condition. I couldn't, I was always falling. I had to go back in again after four weeks with a gross edema. That's where the fluid, if anyone doesn't know, that's where the fluid collects. It's collecting where it shouldn't have collected. It was painful. And that was obviously all caused by the liver, the liver failure. But I got through that. And the first year was difficult. So I, couldn't, I was falling very often. Uh, I was confused. I couldn't write properly. I couldn't spell. It was, it was, it was a, it was a, a living hell at times. But I was lucky. I had lots of support. So fast forward to January 2021, where I had the two, the two biggest gifts. First of all, I became a granddad in January 21 for the first time. My granddaughter Layla was born, and now I'm able to play a big part in in her life rather than somebody just showing a picture saying that was your granddad and she's great and in any also in january 21 i found the british liver trust um i googled a lot of information i've seen videos but i wanted to try and find groups that i connect with in my local area and i came across the british liver trust and i um filled in their online forms and then very quickly i had an email back from a lady called amy caffrey and there was a meeting on Zoom. Now, I'd never done Zoom before, but I know my mum had. Mum's in her 80s, so I thought, well, she'll be able to tell me. So I'll be fine. So I had my first ever Zoom meeting. She said, come on 15 minutes early. I'll have a chat to you and then see how we get on. And I, I know, and I'll always say this, the hour and 15 minutes changed my life forever because I wasn't alone anymore. There were people there that didn't stigmatise me. I didn't know what I was going to see. I suppose I fell into the trap of wondering what people would look like but they were fantastic they were helpful they told me their own stories and it was it was a very positive meeting they'll always remember i had some advice from a gentleman called john john mortimer and he's this was at the meeting and he said i've got 
three pieces of advice they, they said first of all you have to stay positive you have to stay positive all the way through he said and secondly you have to want to get better you have to want this you have to want to get better and thirdly he said you must do as you're told by the medical professionals whatever they say whatever whoever's went to the consultant or a doctor or a nurse or a nurse practitioner or a pharmacist you do as you're told and i always remember telling my mum that ringing my mum she said well you're 58 steve and you've never done as you're told but you better start now and I, and i followed that all the way through really and from that meeting the trust has given me so many different opportunities but it, it it's been amazing it, and, and it's built my confidence i joined um a community-based arts group so at 58 i started doing arts and crafts 42 years on from leaving school 50, yeah 42 years on from leaving school i'm now doing arts and crafts and really enjoying it and i met new friends through that as well i started volunteering for local festivals and it was, it's all about sometimes the resources come to you, but sometimes you have to go out. I think you have to go out and find them, but it's difficult when you've not got the confidence. But just sometimes that one thing for me can build up and then people start to trust me more. And I got more confident when they're asking me about my condition. I didn't feel as if I could, I'd had to hide it anymore like I did in the early days. And people have accepted me for, for who I am, really. And I think, I think. The biggest regret I have, and if anyone's listening to this now, I should have got myself checked earlier. I thought I thought I'd be fine, but when you drink into the levels I would, I did. But it was a stigma. So if anybody is struggling, I would say do it with all of them because it's too late for me now to stop that man that I, when I talk, I can see that man that's me, and I want to tell him to stop because I know what's going to happen to him, but I can't. I can't. But if 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 you're where you are now, it says where I'm at, then. You know, I would say, you know, always hang on to hope. Always hang on to hope. I, I watched a, um, a programme. It was only last week on BBC Two. There was a surgeon speaking. And I always remember what he said. He said, you know, we can't fix everybody, but you know, we always have hope. And he said, where would we be in a world without hope? That's what I would say to everybody. Keep on. And if I, if I look, I always looked for that chink of light at the end of the tunnel. That's what I say to anybody, look for that chink of light at the end of the tunnel and mine's got brighter and brighter and brighter. And if it stays as bright today and that's it, it doesn't get any brighter, I'd be happy with that because it's a million times brighter than it was just three years ago. So there is hope and, and, and you, you can do it. I never thought I could live. You know, I've gone three years without alcohol. I couldn't go three hours at one time. And life is good. And for the first time, I had the brain fog. That washing machine that was in my head is now empty. So that's really what, you know, I could talk for hours. You know, I've got about five, seven minutes. I could talk for seven hours, even listen to the to the speakers before, you know. Thank you, and, Steve, so uh, much for sharing your... Yeah. You're the definition of hope. is the best uh, word you have. I always say that the liver is a good organ, is a good person, is more thankful than other organs, give you a second chance. And you're the reason you're we're here, Steve, and we are thrilled and inspired by your story. Thank you so much. And we have a few minutes for some free discussion. Uh, see some questions for the audience about how to proceed with the treatment of alcohol use disorder. Maybe I will ask, maybe Christian and Giovanni, you think we should start first with motivational or with any 
motivations if we want and then add any medication we need or we should start with both at the beginning what is your your decision because in the absence of good trials what is your sense of where to start uh, if i can reply uh for first or kirsten uh, do you prefer to reply for first one you can do it <laughs> oh, okay nice. uh, uh, i think that um anticraving medication are really useful to improve the success of therapy and uh these data are available in the last 20 years of literature before the discovery of the anticraving medication uh, the percentage of success if the main outcome is the total alcohol abstinence was about at, uh, about 35%, while the integration, the combination with pharmacological therapy uh, led to significantly increased therapeutic success over than uh, 60%. Uh, in patients with alcoholic liver disease, the main outcome, the main outcome is total alcohol abstinence, not alcohol uh, reduction intake. So the combination between pharmacological therapy and uh, psychosocial uh, is really useful and important. I don't know if Kirsten agrees. No, I, I would completely agree. And and part of it too, I think, is something that that Steve had said was you have to want to do this. So, you know, if there is that internal motivation, that medication piece absolutely can help support that because it is very difficult to, to build upon coping skills and manage cravings if you're becoming overwhelmed with that. And if there is a medication that can, you know, settle those receptors in your brain down to help clear your head a bit, absolutely a combination of the two. And there is, to me, there there's no time to start one or the other. It's go for it. See what works. Fantastic. <clears throat> one question about the the burden, the, the type of people that they are presented with alcohol use disorder and alcohol-associated hepatitis is not the, the same in the globe. I recently moved from Pittsburgh to Barcelona and it's completely different. And I want to ask Peter, there is a lot of uh, increase in young women in the UK, in America, but not, for example, in Spain or Italy. Uh, this, how do you explain these differences in epidemiology and the burden um, in different populations in the world? Obviously, the globe is a very heterogeneous place. Yeah. What do you think? Yes, well, it's it's a hard one to explain, but but I, I definitely agree with you that particularly uh, uh, among young women, as you see, there's been some alarming reports from the United States where they've seen a stark increase. So... I, I think it, ha it it must have to do with with behavior. I mean, um, some something about alcohol habits, alcohol culture that has changed. Um, I, I think maybe we should. I think that's, that's a question to sociologists. More likely, I can tell you that we are not seeing the same in Denmark. In, in fact, what I hear from our Danish uh, addiction specialists is that our teenagers are also girls and boys are taking more responsibility for one another. So they they say to each other, you are drinking too much. You need help. So I think that's, if anything, the opposite that we see here. Fantastic. Uh, and I would like uh, one of the questions for Debbie. 
We have not talked about alcohol biomarkers, okay? And especially when we go to urine biomarkers of PATH, and we have experience in PATH that it recapitulates almost one month of drinking, then a lot of people on the reports, basically also because of stigma, health insurance issues, et cetera. What do you think is the role of biomarkers in clinical hepatology to monitor, to detect alcohol use disorder? Yeah, so I think where we've used biomarkers the most actually has been in patients that are listed for liver transplantation. And, and, and that's because we've, we've, we've sort of mandated that if you're listed for transplantation, we need to make sure that you're not drinking. And, and that's, that's the setting where we've most commonly used it. But I think uh, that there's a growing interest in actually how it can be used more in, the, in, in, in patient management routinely. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I much prefer to have honest conversations with my patients, and I'm sure Kristen would agree, actually, that they shouldn't be afraid to actually talk about if they've had a drink, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be saying you've been bad, we, sh we need to be understanding and we need to be supportive. But I think it can be helpful. And, and there's there are a number of trials going on now that are using things, for example, like alcohol breath testing and things to help monitor uh, uh, intake. But, but I think it's still more important to have those kind of conversations in clinics than necessarily to, 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 to use biomarkers. Uh, I mean, I don't know what Kristen thinks about that, but um, whether you use that or not in your practice. I do, and I, I, use, I use the tool, the PETH or urine screens more as a motivational, you know, look, you know, this isn't positive or, you know, I'm, I'm not ordering this test as a gotcha. I want to catch you drinking. I want to confront you. It's more, look at all the hard work you're doing. Um, and yeah, there, there should, there should not be a fear. It should be used as a tool, a motivational tool and, you know, to see where people are at too, because they aren't always going to be honest with you and you want to be able to get them the help, the assistance, the treatment they need. Perfect. Thank you. Steve, you want to add anything about our discussion, anything that any comment that you, you can for your end of any of our discussion today? So yeah, there, there are moments of despair. There's no doubt about that. Not every day is rosy, but if, if you just I would say again, just look for the chink of light at the end of the tunnel and it will get brighter. I promise you that because I never thought it would. In my when I left hospital. It was this this shell had gone from having a successful business to nothing overnight, not even how to cook a meal or, or even write or read properly. But all of a sudden, and, and, and it's that, and, and surround yourself with the right people as well. And I, I'm, I've got a massive circle of friends, but but it's the resources, like I say, the British Liberal Trust that that, that that came into my life right at the right time, and then you'll you'll meet like-minded people. And, and you're learning from their experience and that's where I think has been my biggest jump if you will because I you know people are, are sharing their experiences and I'm learning all the time and keeping fit is a good thing as well I started on a, a fitness regime in April this year it's made a real difference in the mentality as well I'm not jogging 30 miles a day or anything like that but I'm you know, consistently trying to look after myself better and things like that. But always, always hang on to hope because it is that's that's important. Even when you're really low, and keep a smile on your face. You can do that. Keep a smile on your face. That's important. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. So well, uh, thank you, everybody. I, I, as a concluding remark, 
I always would say one thing, the patients that have suffered these stigmatizing disease, they sense if you care. The first step of a provider to cure these patients is they feel you really care about them at all levels. And they can sense, and some of the people approach you a little defensive, a little with some uh, questions, et cetera. When you see the eyes that you care about the health, about the outcome of the quality of life, that is the first step. This is what I say in other topics. Anyway, thank you everybody for this fantastic uh, studio. I hope this can inspire new generations also to devote more time and efforts to this important disease. And I will thank, especially Steve, your your uh, declaration, what, what you have say have inspired us so much. And we're so happy you're doing so well. Thank you so much to everybody.